Welcome to the Voice of Oregon's Workers, a podcast from the Oregon AFL-CIO, where we highlight the people and the organizations who are the backbone of the constant struggle for workplace democracy across our beautiful state. We hope to capture their stories, their victories, and their lessons learned on the long, difficult journey towards a just and fair economy that lifts up all working people. We also hope to elevate the inspirational examples of unified, solidarity-driven, working-class power. The American labor movement has captured the hearts and minds of workers everywhere who are looking for a better life. With waves of strikes, innovative organizing, and fights for change in every sector of the economy. This is our moment, and it's up to us to seize it. I'm Oregon AFL-CIO President Graham Trainer, and I'm proud to welcome you to our latest episode. Welcome back to the Voice of Oregon's Workers. On this month's episode, we're bringing you an insightful panel discussion from the 2022 Oregon AFL-CIO Convention on how unions are engaging in clean energy jobs and technology. The panelists on this episode are Ranfis Viatoro from the Blue Green Alliance, Rick Levy, president of the Texas AFL-CIO, Carol Zabin from the UC Berkeley Labor Center, and Micah Mitrowski from the IBW. These panelists are centering the unique opportunity unions have in the clean energy economy. In Oregon and across the country, we recognize that the clean energy future is upon us, and as union members, we have a strategic and moral imperative to be at the center of these conversations. Climate change and its policy responses touch all of us as workers, from the letter carriers and laborers, more often experiencing extreme heat and cold working conditions, to electricians, auto workers, truck drivers, who are at the front of vehicle electrification, to farm workers exposed to dangerous wildfire smoke, and the trades members installing wind, solar, and hydropower. Climate change and clean energy can and should affect us all. And as such, we must make sure that workers are at the table, forming policy solutions that work for all of us. From fair and just transitions and retraining to making sure clean energy jobs are union jobs with fair pay, good benefits, and the safest working conditions. Our panelists highlight the many ways that labor and the environment are coming together to create new opportunities for working people in Oregon and beyond. low-wage, dangerous work in the carbon economy. 
industry by industry. We challenged the inhumane conditions and relentless pace of production and made those jobs into good careers with wages and benefits to support a family. And that's how unions built America's middle class. As we build the clean energy future, every working person should have access to the life-changing power of a good union job. And lastly, the foundation of our movement is solidarity. The threat of a changing climate will impact all of us. No community is safe from this existential threat until every single community is safe. And we must put racial and gender justice front and center of all of these conversations. transition depends on a high road and high wage strategy. It can be done. Today's panelists have an abundance of experience and expertise to share with us on what good work has been done, as well as what can be done in the future. So first, I'm going to go ahead and ask each of these amazing panelists seated around me to introduce themselves to you briefly so you can all get a sense of who we are hearing from today. And then each of these experts has prepared a short presentation on their work ensuring clean energy future is union made. And then we'll end with a couple questions for you guys. I'll go ahead and start right over here. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Randy Stanchino Gatoro. I'm the Oregon State Policy Coordinator with the Oregon Alliance. We are a national organization founded between United Steelworkers and the Sierra Club over a dozen years ago. Aim to address our environmental challenges while creating good quality jobs. Thank you. Good morning, brothers and sisters. My name is Rick Levy. I'm the president of the Texas AFL-CIO, and very excited to be with you here. Good morning, sisters and brothers. My name is Mike Petrosky. I'm an international representative with IBEW's 9th District covering the West Coast. Comprehensive climate bill that you know set 
the committed the state to its reduction goals. And the California Labor Fed came to us at the Labor Center at UC Berkeley and said, what the heck does this mean for our unions and, and our members and workers in California? And so we started learning about climate policy and it was a pretty steep learning curve, I must say. It took a long time to kind of get a handle on what, what it meant. And I just wanted to share some of the kind of lessons that we've learned and, and really look forward to hearing uh, other people's perspectives. I mean, the bottom line is that uh, the labor movement has to be super vigilant about this policy. It's a big intervention in the economy in many sectors. And if we are vigilant, then we can ensure that the jobs that stick around and change and are created are good jobs, are good union jobs. Um, that's the bottom line. It takes a lot of vigilance and engagement because as you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So the lessons I, I thought of when I was thinking what to say today are, are in two buckets. One is the lessons for policymakers and two is lessons for unions. And the lessons for policymakers, because I, I do think in, you know, um, the labor movement will succeed if it really engages in policy, because this is a policy. I mean, it's a big portfolio of policies, of many policies, but it is policy. Um, and the, the old school for California was, um, there were all these um, agencies implementing these very ambitious climate policies, and their view on labor was, well, the economy changes, and workers have to adjust, and we can help them prepare for that change by um, funding training. And that was kind of their view. And it took a long time and a lot of research and just a lot of relationship building and engagement to get them to see really that it's more on the job side. That in fact, when you look at the jobs affected by climate policy, it's mostly blue collar work way more than the economy as a whole. Yes, there are engineers and architects and those guys, and yes, they have to learn new, new information and skills, but for blue-collar workers, we know that unless those jobs are union or they're public sector, they're both, they're likely these days to be low-wage jobs. We have a low-wage economy that turns out more and more low-wage jobs, and so, when we understand that, and we understand that green jobs aren't really different, there are a bunch of blue-collar jobs that are changing, but they're not new and different, then kind of the, the impulse to throw some money at rooftop solar training kind of goes out the window. Um, and they begin to understand that it's really about which employers you choose as government to carry out this big transformation. And that you can choose high road employers. Um, and, and so I do think that um, the policymakers are kind of coming around to see how important it is, what kinds of jobs are created, uh, and what, which employers are favored, and which employers are screened out because they're you know, cost cutters and, you know, low-wage bidders and all that. 
Then we started to kind of get somewhere because I, I do think it's important to recognize that the, the politicians and policymakers and agency people who are end up either pushing or implementing climate policy, they're not necessarily against unions and they're they they're generally pro pro good jobs, but they don't really understand, for one thing, the construction industry, and two, they have this old attitude of let's help the workers adjust rather than let's use our leverage and power as government to make sure we support high-road employers. So that's kind of how we've ended up, I think, communicating with policymakers um, and beginning to, um, you know, change the tenor of um, climate policy where they, in fact, embrace um, the idea of producing union jobs and helping facilitate union jobs. On the union side, again, you know, and I, I mean, I, obviously this is a lot about organizing and, and I can't speak to that as much because I'm in the policy arena, but what what I've learned working really closely with a lot of unions is um, climate policy, again, it's this big bunch. It's this whole portfolio of policies, right? It affects, I mean, the energy sector and the transportation sector are the big ones, but there's a lot of different industries within those, um, you know, from transit to trucking to electric vehicle um, electric vehicles and you know just to name a few in transportation but there's also other sectors there's waste there's agriculture there's manufacturing uh, one that's really important for you guys i think is forestry like forestry management and fire prevention um, that's a big one that's publicly funded and in most cases or in a bunch of cases it's really about making sure that the policies include labor standards. Um, and that's particularly effective for construction where we can put skilled and trained language or, uh, you know, favor or require PLAs, um, but it's also important in the other industries. So labor standards attach to the climate policies that, you know, the environs and the experts have created. So we can incorporate what's good for workers into that set of policies. And then in some cases, um, it's also important to kind of expand the, the pie of policies and maybe consider things that don't have the biggest bang for the buck in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but are still really good public policies and in fact can help workers. And, you know, over, at first, California didn't really have to deal with the, the fact that there may be job loss, because in fact, so far, there really hasn't been job loss for gas and oil workers, but it's starting, right? We have a refinery closure that just happened, basically due to COVID, not due to climate policy, but we have to, you know, look at the possibility of job loss head on and not um, you know, close our eyes and not pretend we can just do, throw a little just transition safety net on the problem and it goes away. I mean, as you all know how serious it is when a household 
loses a middle class job, um, and sometimes it's generational, and sometimes it's you know extended family. Um, and so there is now really this moment of opportunity, I think, with the federal funding, um, even without Build Back Better, even, and if it ever passes, it would be really a huge opportunity um, to do things that can redeploy gas workers. And we've just been doing some work in San Diego, Michael probably knows about it, um, where that isn't a super dependent fossil fuel dependent region, like you guys aren't. Um, and there's things like waste to energy and district energy and, um, you know, water reuse that, and different kinds of um, supply chain around the battery manufacturing and lithium extraction that can actually, you know, not send a, a gas an oil and gas worker onto a rooftop solar job, which we know is not a good solution, but to redeploy them in something that actually uses their skills and can pay comparable wages and can be represented by the same darn union. So I think we're kind of at that stage. And I think I'm going to um, stop there and just conclude by saying, this really does take engagement, it takes paying attention, it takes building relationships um, with the agencies that implement. Um, it does take organizing, because policy can set the table, but organizing still has to happen. And, um, but it is possible. It is possible to really address our climate crisis, really mitigate and slow down and get to net zero,
uh, over 700,000 active members and retirees in the U.S. and Canada, and our members work across all aspects of the electrical industry, including construction, utilities, telecommunications, broadcast, manufacturing, railroads, and government. And in terms of clean transportation, we are the workforce who construct, install, and maintain EV charging infrastructure, including the grid upgrades and the related work. So these are the, this is the infrastructure that helps keep the electric trucks, buses, and cars going and charged up and ready to be out on the roads. So IBW electricians are already training to construct, install, and maintain EV charging infrastructure for zero emission vehicles through a program called the Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Training Program, and that's EVITP. This is a national program, and it's an important safety certification for electricians that helps ensure EV charging infrastructure is constructed, installed, and maintained by properly trained personnel. We can go to the next slide. For IBW, it's important, as I know for all of us, to see the clean transportation sector creating union electrical careers and attaching labor standards and EVITP requirements to clean transportation policies and programs will help create quality union electrical career opportunities. Additionally, as we all know, charging infrastructure projects that are built union support local hiring, which benefits workers and the community. We can go to the next slide. So one example of a model where clean transportation is creating union electrical construction jobs is in California, where several key ingredients um, are in place and a lot of coalition partnership work help result, uh, help brought about some major victories. So California has the advanced clean trucks rule, which many of you may already know Oregon has adopted. Uh, there are utility EV charging initiatives that incorporate labor and EVITP safety standards, and utility initiatives are a really important component to the success of widespread transportation electrification. And then there's also statewide legislation that includes EVITP requirements for charging infrastructure programs that are approved or funded by major state agencies, three major state agencies. So clean transportation represents really exciting opportunities for partnership with like-minded allies and to replicate um, best practices that can of course be fine-tuned to meet Oregon's needs. And I'll also just quickly mention, uh, some of you may, may also know the infrastructure bill includes a $7.5 billion investment in EV charging infrastructure, uh, including many millions that will be coming here to Oregon. So with that, I will close, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Great. Well, we have plenty of questions for you in a minute. Just wait, <laughs> Just wait and see. All right. I'm going to pass it on to Rick. <laughs> All right. Are we ready? We sure are. Thank you. And Secretary, and before I start, I'm just going to take a moment of personal privilege when I came all the way here to say that in addition to being the president of the Texas FLCIO, I'm also the long-standing president of the Tom Chamberlain Barbara Bird Fan Club. And so, <laughs> uh, I this weekend, they 
makes this especially sweet to be here. So um, I've always wanted to be Tom and Barbara when I grew up, so um, I feel like this is about as close as I'll get. And Graham, thank you also for um, for having me. And Christy, I, you know, we shamelessly steal much of what y'all do here. I hope you don't mind um, as we try and build a labor movement in Texas. Um, and I also want to thank Chelsea for helping us all stay coordinated for this event. So thank you, Chelsea. Texas, clean energy, it's not exactly two concepts that go very well together <laughs> in most people's mind. Um, the Texas FLCR is very heavily um, uh, represented in the fossil fuel industries in, um, in our state. Um, and for that reason, we haven't had a long history of engaging in pro-climate, pro-job um, activities. Um, typically, uh, we just haven't been involved in things at the legislature or else it would be um, you know, the, the oil companies would bring our workers in to testify against most environmental initiatives, and that was the involvement of the labor movement. Um, I also remember one of my favorite quotes ever, um, back in the 90s, in Austin, Texas, which is where I live, has a Barton Springs, which is like the crown jewel of the, uh, of the ecology in, uh, in Texas. And uh, I remember the head of the building trade at the time, a good friend, said that uh, they were, we were debating some bill that was in the legislature, and he said, well, I would support building a whale rendering plant over Barton Springs as long as they built a union. And so I said, okay. Um, okay, that, that works. But um, things have changed a lot, and things have changed for a couple of reasons in the labor movement in Texas, and that's just kind of what I want to spend a minute about. Um, I don't remember, I have slides in a minute, but right now that's okay. Um, the first thing that changes is that no, we can no longer deny that climate change is a huge issue that's affecting every one of us in our daily lives, and that the labor movement has an obligation to address that. Um, we experience things uh, like climate change far more dramatically. Well, I know y'all have fires here, but in terms of the hurricanes and the, and the storms that we are experiencing that are more violent and more devastating every year, that it's no longer acceptable to just say, that's not our problem. Um, and the second thing that happened that I think is really interesting is that we have we had started to have really big fights in the labor movement about candidates who would want our endorsement. And two years ago, we had a big fight over two candidates who are 100% pro-union, but also who endorse uh, the Green New Deal. And our convention, which you know, which you have to have two-thirds vote, decided to endorse both of these candidates. And as a result. Um, one of the larger IBW locals in the state came to me and said, we're getting out of the AFL-CIO. That we cannot abide um, our organization endorsing candidates whose main goal is to put us out of work. And so we're going to get out of the AFL-CIO. And I went down and I talked to them and I said, look, I get it, um, but what we have to do is stop being defensive. We have to stop just waiting for candidates to come to us and tell us um, why we should support them. We need to come up with our program and then bring that to the candidates and have them respond to us. And that we need to be united. So I asked them, would you please not leave and would you please join us in coming up with what is labor's view on climate change so that we can be a proactive force um, in this debate. And thankfully they said they would. And so we created a task force, and 
This task force was made up of 22 different unions in the state of Texas, everywhere from the nurses to the uh, to the IBW, to the plumbers, to Maida. Um, you think of a union, and they were all at the table. We sat down and we said, look, sometimes solidarity means marching to the hotel and supporting the workers that are there organizing. But sometimes what solidarity means is getting in the room with the people that you share um, a movement with and figuring out how we can work together. How can we work, how can we come up with something that is the labor movement view of what, um, of what we should be doing? We spent a year studying the issue. We learned about climate change together, sitting in the same room. We learned about the challenges of reducing emissions. We learned about inequality in our economy, because the reality is, is that you cannot solve climate change without addressing inequality, and you can't solve inequality without addressing climate change. And so we wanted to say that from our point of view as labor, what is our path? So we can now change the slide so people know that I really have a slide. So we came up with the Texas Climate Jobs Project. And the Texas Climate Jobs Project, you can change it again, see we're really moving, is, uh, is a, we created a nonprofit organization um, that, um, that is organizing around ending, uh, around addressing climate change, creating union jobs, and fighting inequality. And um, uh, it's, it's uh, you can change it again. There you go. The first thing we did was we issued a report. And this report is a blueprint on how to create over a million union jobs in Texas alone. You know, Texas is a big place. A million union jobs in Texas um, while also addressing inequality and climate change. You can see the link in there and you can check it out. Um, and so, and, and the key was, Excuse me, I've got to change my own slides. The key is to break through the notion that dealing with climate change is a job-killing idea and flipping that to saying that dealing with cl climate change can be a job creation program if unions and workers are at the forefront. And that's what this plan is all about. You can show uh, do it again. So we are running campaigns on carbon-free and healthy schools, um, utility-scale wind programs, hydrogen plants, uh, making sure that the next generation of technology is union. Because you can't, like, I think um, this, uh, from California was speaking about, you know, you can't tell somebody who's worked for 20 years in a refinery that, yeah, we're going to retrain you to be a uh, rooftop solar worker because they'll laugh you right out of the right out of the room. Um, all of, you can see all of the different technologies that were, um, we are engaged in to make sure that when they are created, they are union. Um, one that's left off is the electric vehicle charging restructure, where we're involved in a coalition to make sure that we get those standards adopted in Texas. Um, just, so one little example, then I'll shut up, am I right? Oh yeah, okay. no, you're great. Okay, the Carbon Free Schools Program is such an amazing program. It's our first campaign. So that's the building trades, the teachers, SEIU, all together saying, we are running campaigns school district by school district, where we're getting local school boards to commit to bond programs that will retrofit the school buildings, make the school buses electric, um, use union and apprentice labor, and take the savings that come from those energy savings 
and put them all into teacher and classified payroll um, raises so that everybody is So right now we have three, we, can, uh, we have four full-time staff people, um, Bo, Stephanie, Max, and the guy on the left, um, Marty Ross uh, from Boston, um, who we just met with, and um, he's really excited about working with us, and we're really excited about moving forward. And the, the most exciting thing, and I'll wrap up here, is that at the end of this process, when we finish with this report and this process, the folks from the local who were going to get out of the AFL-CIO came up and said, you know what? This is exactly what needed to happen. And what's really exciting is that right now, if you look at the campaign for governor in Texas, he's not coming and asking our, for our endorsement, and we're not fighting about that. And the reason why is because he is explicitly running on the Texas AFL-CIO climate jobs project where he is talking about creating over a million union jobs in Texas. And so the entire labor movement can be behind that effort because it was us who brought that momentum to the conversation. And so we're just really excited to hear your thoughts and to be part of this conversation with y'all. And uh, that's all I got. Great. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. All right. Graham, please go ahead and uh, share with us a little bit about why this matters to Oregon. Uh, hi, everyone. Again, my name is uh, Graham Peace. Good to know Pietoro. And I have to apologize in advance. I have a lot of coffee that's starting to come in. So I'm ready to jump out of my seat. So we're going to go to the next slide. So I know we just heard about. California, Texas, I know some of you are wondering, we're not California, <laughs> we're not Texas. Uh, well, why does this matter more? Uh, I won't go long here about our extreme climate events, because I know each of you know that each of you were expected to continue to go to work in the backdrop of the pandemic. And I know many of you come from parts of the state that are experiencing perpetual drought and the importance of water rights and our water resources. I know some of you have been in the front lines of some of our extreme wildfire seasons and the impacts that it's had and um, kind of rebuild our communities in Southern and Central Oregon. Uh, and I know many of you have been in the front lines of policy, trying to address some proactive environmental policy agendas, transportation, building, and energy that have not and centered on workers. And I know many of you are trying to see the opportunity of the advent of investments in critical infrastructure for workers and union jobs. Uh, but we know that the future of clean energy is not a guarantee. We know that the future of clean energy union jobs is also not a guarantee. So it requires us to be at the table. And I just want to recognize uh, the many experts here in this room today who have been advocating and demanding, just like the building trades I see over here, fighting with 
when developers ensure that their high-road jobs being done on our projects. Uh, I know there are many public service sector workers here who are stewards of our public dollars and ensuring that we have good quality uh, environmental stewardship of our laws. Uh, if we go, go to the next slide. What are the steps we, we have taken so far? Uh, I just want to thank uh, Barbara Bird and the Oregon NFL CIO for the leadership and the creation of uh, the Blue Green Alliance Oregon chapter. I would not be here uh, without that leadership. Uh, I also want to recognize uh, just the leadership also in the passage of House Bill 2021, Clean Energy Labor Standards. Though imperfect, we worked to etch in labor standards in the books of law. I just want to recognize the leadership of IBW. 932 Bob Westerman, the State Association. And, uh, Mayuna and the Oregon Southern Idaho uh, District Council of Laborers. And other states who worked to refine the labor standards to ensure that in our future that we have clear language to enforce our labor laws to protect our workers. That will be a new chapter, a new challenge, and I'm excited to see that future, that Adam, to ensure that the future of union jobs are not just written in paper, but that we're actually able to protect workers and keep them whole. Additionally, we've passed House Bill 4139 on bioclean, a procurement policy that ensures that we are promoting less carbon-intensive materials in transportation projects. We fell short on ensuring Buy America provisions that our steelworker partners and AM try to push. It's going to require a lot of our energy to continue to ensure that we are promoting domestic materials in our state, promoting the good quality jobs that we need in manufacturing. And I'm so thankful that we passed the resolution supporting that. As we go to the next slide. This is just a preview of what we're seeing around the corner. The potential for three gigawatts to 17 gigawatts of offshore wind off of the Oregon southern coast. Just put that in perspective, three to 17 gigawatts of offshore wind. Uh, President Biden made an executive order to make a commitment for 30 gigawatts of offshore wind. That is uh, the ballpark, uh, just to put that in context, seven nuclear facilities in our country. It's the equivalent. Three, 17 gigawatts. Okay, just to put an additional perspective, out of New York, Brighton, where they had their first lease auction just for one gigawatt, it generated $4.13 billion uh, just through the lease auction. And we're talking about three to 17 gigawatts off of our Oregon Southern Coast. But you know and I know and we know that developers don't work under the, don't center workers. It'll be important that we fight to ensure that that lease centers our communities, our families, our workers. So I look forward to engaging with the many experts in this room uh, for what that opportunity could look like, not just for construction, because there'll be a lot of construction workforce hours, not just in the 
off the building and the fabrication of those offshore uh, uh, flotation devices, but also the supply chain for manufacturing. Cement, steel, aluminum, those are the materials that we need to build those, uh, those structures. And the question mark of where those are sourced could be the difference between those materials coming from Europe or those materials being sourced from our state, from our region, and helping opening up uh, facilities that have closed over the years. So it's going to take a lot of our collaborative energy and coalition building to ensure that that future, again, is centered for our future and our reality, uh, and that those are union jobs. I can go to the next slide. So I'll conclude uh, with an invitation and uh, also a quote. So on the July 25th, we will have the Oregon Labor Climate Summit. So I want to thank uh, Grant Trainer, uh, as well as many of our labor leaders who have done some initial planning uh, to put together an Oregon Labor Climate Summit on July 25th. Still finalizing day and time and location, but we will follow up with that invitation. Uh, but the goal and importance is how do we discuss and develop the strategies and agenda for how to protect workers, advance union jobs, and practically uh, in Oregon policy discussions to ensure that, again, that that future agenda is centering needs of workers and not displacing the needed workers uh, from the fossil fuel infrastructure, but we need to continue to make sure that they are working as well. So I'll end with this quote from uh, a former president from a different era with a different challenge. He said, but why? Some say the moon. Why choose this as our goal? And they may ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly across the Atlantic? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because the goal we're organized to measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is our challenge that we are willing to accept. That is a challenge that we are unwilling to postpone. So I look to each of you to help us go to the moon and back on clean energy for our future, our children's future. I just want to end there and thank everyone again and look forward to collaborating and working with each of you to making that future Reality. Thank you again, panelists, for preparing such robust presentations that really illustrate the work that you're doing. Uh, and now, uh, questions, as promised. Uh, my first one, Greg, I'm going to pick on you first. Is that okay? Bring it. Ready for it? 
So we really enjoyed hearing all about the Texas Climate Project that y'all are working on. Uh, can you, you started talking about this and you shared a little bit, but can you tell us a little bit more, elaborate on what the next steps are? Yeah, the next steps are, um, thank you, the next steps are continuing to really um, build support in the union movement for this work. Um, to, we have to demonstrate that it really does create jobs to address climate change, and it really does address inequality to take these steps. Um, and so the campaigns that we're running, um, I think, are really uh, well geared to doing that. Um, and and we can, because look, our our membership is very heavily invested in the status quo, um, and we have to demonstrate our commitment to their interests. They've powered our state for decades, for generations. And any plan that doesn't bring their needs front and center is not gonna be the plan of the labor movement. Um, and so that's, that's the challenge that we face. Um, one of the really exciting things I think um, the speaker from California talked about with um, uh, high road employers, one of the things we're really excited about is, you know, we're looking at, you know, Houston has so much potential for things like carbon capture and other things that will decarbonize so much of the industry. But ExxonMobil came to the government in Houston looking for a big subsidy to lead that effort. And so I'm really excited that the Climate Jobs Project worked with the steelworkers to get the Harris County Commissioners, who is that agency, to say no to Exxon. Because at the time, they had locked out 600 steelworkers in Beaumont, Texas. And so we said to the government, you know, yeah, we want to be your partner in cleaning the environment, but we're not doing it with Exxon. And so they told Exxon to get lost. And we said, continue ways to link jobs with, um, good jobs with uh, the clean economy. All right, next I'm going to have one for Rampies, and then Carol on deck with a question after. So, can you tell us a little bit more about the legislative landscape in 2023? What can we expect? A great question. I think what we should expect in, in 2023 is we should ex uh, expect policy related to buildings and transportation. Uh, I just want to recognize, even though we passed 100% clean energy, that 100% clean energy standard puts on ourselves in a pathway to try to source 100% clean energy generation from our electric uh, grid. However, it doesn't address um, where we see the most amount of emissions in our state, which is in the transportation and building sector. Um, so I think uh, we should accept, expect and anticipate policies uh, related in that space. So, uh, you know, look again to the Oregon Labor Movement. How do we proactively ensure that there is uh, an agenda that centers around the needs of workers. Because I think, again, I think many of our legislators don't know, don't understand what a high road job is. When they look at these job under creation, not thinking about um, job quality. So I think it's, it's going to be really important, critical um, that we advocate to ensure that those are, uh, again, high road union jobs, that they're promoting apprenticeship programs, they're uh, promoting prevailing wages. Uh, they're inclusive career pathways for women, veterans, and people of color. Uh, there's no one else in the movement that could do better uh, than the labor movement. Uh, we should not expect developers um, to create that agenda and create those inclusive pathways. So I know many 
labor leaders have advocated this for many years. I'm not really saying anything substantively new, uh, but I do, I do think it's important that um, uh, legislators hear that we have a proactive agenda. Uh, additionally, we should expect um, at least a study update on offshore wind. I've not heard yet what we are expected from the policy arena, but we should be prepared and uh, ready to um, see what, what that could look like. Now, just for additional context on offshore wind, it's not just the building of that uh, fabrication of that offshore wind facility, it's the pairing of the potential for a new port being developed. It's the potential of uh, hydrogen. So again, how do we build that? Uh, who, which manufacturing jobs are being created? And are those being done here in Oregon? Those are going to require policy leverage. Uh, it's going to require folks who understand uh, what is needed to make that an actual reality with good enforcement. Great. Thank you. All right, Carol, can you speak a little bit more about what's on the horizon for California? Sure, yeah, I just basically want to echo what, what everybody's been saying in the last few comments and, and, and say again that this is really a moment of opportunity where there's a lot of federal funding coming down for, um, for infrastructure and for clean energy um, that has language in it that supports you know, community and labor engagement and partnership. And I know from friends who work in DOE and some other agencies, they don't always have an easy time finding the projects, even when they put out the, um, the language in a way that favors uh, union employers. And so it really is a moment of being really proactive with, with the emerging stuff like hydrogen, but also with you know the stuff that we know already works, like from charging stations to um, you know, to more transit, to all kinds of things, energy efficiency on public buildings, all, all the kinds of things that we've been making inroads into, well, all of a sudden there's more funding and it's really a moment where we're trying to be proactive and, um, you know, both approach employers that aren't union and really work with the unionized employers to expand um, and and move into some new arenas. Thank you, Carol. Micah, can you speak a little bit more to where IPW sees opportunities for new union job growth in clean technologies? Sure. So um, areas where we see opportunity for new union job growth as we build this clean energy future, um, include advanced manufacturing, so energy and tech sectors, of course, transmission build out, I've already mentioned the charging infrastructure, renewable energy storage, and offshore wind is a big, exciting, and emerging area that I know Randy spoke of and is, um, is becoming a bigger conversation here in the state of Oregon, which we are uh, engaged in and will be engaged in. And then as has been mentioned, you know, by the other panelists, of course, attaching labor standards and requirements and being inclusive um, as we move forward with these things. Great. Thank you so much. All right. This question is for anyone to take. Um, you can popcorn in. Uh, so we know that thousands 
of union represented workers in high emitting industries, and we've clearly stated that the road uh, to clean energy economy must run through the labor movement. Uh, so what are some strategies that you've seen or advocated for to ensure that these workers aren't left behind? Feel free to raise your hands and or your voices. I'll, I'll take a first shot at this. I'm not the expert on this, uh, but I had the pleasure of um, having, having an annual uh, sorry, workshop yesterday with Mike and uh, having the chance to talk to many labor leaders uh, in that space. And I think um, some of the UA folks said it well. Um, they need to be at the table on the planning and implementation the future of this transition. Uh, no one is going to advocate the most for workers than the, the unions that represent those workers. So I think I fundamentally believe that any sort of plan that we're thinking about uh, has to be centered around those, that, work, that workforce. Uh, we cannot just throw away the infrastructure that we have today, but how do we think about reusing and repurposing that infrastructure uh, for whether it's the advent of hydrogen, whether it's the advent of, of uh, how we use steam and other technologies. Um, so again, I think I look at the labor movement of, of how we do that. And I think, as traditionally, there have been discussions about a just transition. I think I've heard it well from many labor leaders in this room is that like, we've done a terrible job of transitioning our workforce. Um, so I think the experiences here um, are really valuable in terms of how we advocate and elevate um, legislators to think about that just transition uh, is really just a fancy term, but it, unless you have workers at the table uh, to really craft that policy to one, do no harm, uh, and then two, have the policy levers to, to get the barriers that needed to transition our workforce uh, and making sure that they're being compensated over uh, retirement. Uh, but at least we have um, workers at the table uh, and serve them. And so we, until we do that, I think every sort of policy strategy will, will fall short. Uh, and I think that's something that I've continued to hear from the leaders here um, in this room, and I think that's something that will continue to advocate and show the solidarity of moving lines as we need those labor to Thank you. Can I have Absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to go a little bit of a different direction. I agree with that. But the other thing, one moment in our year-long study of this really strikes me that I just want to share, and that was, um, one of the steelworker members of our task force who represents um, workers all throughout the refinery industry, Shell, um, Exxon, etc. He said that when you sit and you learn about this thing, you can't help but be committed to doing something about it. But that the problem is that our members are living in fear. Our members are living um, under the threat of losing everything and that he said that what we need to do is make sure that this conversation or this presentation whatever you want to call it is happening in union halls around the state because as leaders sometimes we have information we get information that they don't have and so we become separated from them in terms of the things that we advocate for and the things that we care about so the next person that we're looking to hire is um, is a labor educator to travel the state, going into union halls around the state, and having this very conversation with workers um, themselves, not just their leaders, because that will 
Number one, you know, we're not going to do this because we have great ideas. We're going to do this because we're able to build power. And we can't build power unless our members are fully engaged in the process. And so um, uh, that's the one thing that I think that, um, that we have to be really serious about, to not be afraid of having those hard conversations. Because what he also said was that the union leader who gets elected doesn't want to touch this because their members, they're scared of what their members will think. So unless we can really have hard conversations with our members, we will never build the kind of movement that we really need to do to have really significant change. Micah, Carol, anything to add? I don't know um, if this is something to add. This is more of a broader, I guess, comment. You know, we hear a lot about the concept of being at the table. I would propose that we want to design the menu yeah. and we will pick out the ingredients Thank too. Organize and mobilize. We need to do whatever Barbara says. Yeah. 